With smoking rates among U.S. adults down to about 18%, public health experts have been debating the best strategies for the tobacco endgame. A few localities, including New York City, have made it illegal to sell tobacco products and electronic cigarettes to people under 21. But some advocates urge a harm reduction approach that may include greater acceptance of e-cigarette use. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Matthew Myers, President of the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. We're discussing three perspective articles about efforts to reduce or eliminate smoking and prevent tobacco-related illness and death. Mr. Myers, in their perspective article, Winnikoff and colleagues argue that Tobacco 21 laws should be more widely enacted and more vigorously enforced. How well do you think that kind of restriction will work, given that tobacco products are still legal for adults and for anyone to possess and use? In recent days, we have seen real interest in raising the age of sale of tobacco products to 21. In just the last two months, the Big Island of Hawaii and the city of New York raised the age of sale. We don't yet have a lot of data about the exact impact of that, but there's sound reason to believe that it will further the effort to reduce youth tobacco use. National data show that 95% of all adults begin smoking before they turn 21, while nearly half of all adult smokers become regular daily smokers before 18, more than 75% of them become regular daily smokers before they turn 21. What that means is that the 18 to 21 age range is a time when many smokers transition to regular use of cigarettes. There may be an additional advantage to increasing the age to 21, and that is it will make it even harder for 18-year-olds to buy cigarettes. We know that many of the people who purchase cigarettes for teens are themselves between the age of 18 and 20. And interestingly, the tobacco companies have admitted in their own internal documents that if they don't capture new users by the age of 21, it's very unlikely they ever will. There's a 1982 document from R.J. Reynolds in which a researcher says, if a man has never smoked by age 18, the odds are 3 to 1 he never will. By age 21, the odds rise to 20 to 1. So this is an experiment that is worth conducting, worth monitoring carefully, because there is some sound reason to believe that increasing the age of sale to 21 can help further reduce tobacco use among teenagers. Beyond Tobacco 21 laws, are there additional tactics we should be looking at specifically to keep young people from starting to smoke? It's a great question. You know, we've made a great deal of progress just since 1997. We've decreased smoking among high school seniors from over 36% down to 16.3%. So the question we have to ask is how do we do better? Well, the first thing we need to do, I think, is not abandon the tools that have helped us get this far because we haven't sufficiently implemented them. We know that raising the price of cigarettes, mostly through higher taxes, is still the most effective way to reduce tobacco use among kids. We also know that as states pass laws protecting all people from secondhand smoke, not only does it reduce exposure to secondhand smoke, it changes the societal norm and also helps us reduce tobacco use. The third thing that we do need to do and we need to return to is that after the master settlement agreement between the states and the tobacco companies in 1998, many states funded comprehensive tobacco control programs. In virtually every one of those states, we saw a significant reduction in youth tobacco use, 
but many of them no longer fund them. So one of the most important things we can do is hold our public officials accountable to fund those programs that we know what works. And perhaps the last and the most innovative new strategy that we really need to be looking at is that now that the Food and Drug Administration has authority over the marketing, sale, and manufacture of tobacco products, for the first time we have an agency that has the authority to control the content of cigarettes. We now know that cigarettes today are not only as deadly, but potentially even more deadly than they were in 1964, that the cigarette companies do things that make them more addictive, and that there are a substantial number of ways the cigarette companies have altered cigarette products to make them more appealing and easier to use for kids. None of that should be allowed, and the FDA now has the authority to do something about it. The New York City Tobacco 21 law includes e-cigarettes, but in another perspective article, Fairchild and colleagues argue that e-cigarettes should be considered part of a harm reduction strategy for reducing tobacco use and related morbidity and mortality. Where do you come down on e-cigarettes? Are they smoking cessation aids, or will they reopen the door to widespread smoking? Fairchild and Bayer do a nice job of saying, we don't yet know the answer. What we do know is that we all continue to look for ways to get people to quit smoking cigarettes, the most dangerous product, and that e-cigarettes on the surface appear to hold potential for being another tool to do so. But what we have also seen in the marketplace, unfortunately, is that e-cigarette manufacturers have used the same marketing tactics, the same images that the tobacco industry used to make cigarettes appealing to kids, and that since they've begun doing so, we've seen a dramatic rise in use among kids. So we have a true balance. This is a product that appears under the right circumstances, that holds some potential to be helpful in reducing the number of people who smoke cigarettes and therefore die from tobacco-related disease. On the other hand, we currently have an unregulated marketplace in which e-cigarette manufacturers' marketing has appeared to appeal more to young people. We have documented a dramatic rise in use by young people, including many who were never previously cigarette smokers, first by the CDC and then a study in Florida and most recently a study in Utah. What I think the message really says to us is that it's vital for the Food and Drug Administration to act quickly to regulate the manufacture, marketing, and sale of electronic cigarettes and for states to apply those laws that govern cigarettes so that we maximize the opportunity, any opportunity that may exist for them to be a harm reduction tool rather than a renormalization, reglamorization tool. Thus, what we do with e-cigarettes is probably going to be critical in terms of whether or not we learn whether they can reduce smoking and tobacco-related disease or whether they simply become a pathway for a new generation of young people to become addicted. More broadly, how well do products that are designed specifically as smoking cessation aids actually work? And are they the best approaches to quitting smoking? One of the reasons that I think you see so many people interested in e-cigarettes is that while current FDA-approved smoking cessation aids have shown to be effective and to increase the likelihood that somebody will be able to quit, the success rates aren't what anybody wants to see. 
And what that means is that we need to continue to look for ways to improve the quality of the assistance that we're providing smokers who want to quit. One of the ways of doing that for certain is to improve FDA-approved, carefully tested smoking cessation assist aids. One of the things we need to do is to ensure that the provision in the Affordable Care Act that guarantees that every person should be able to gain access to smoking cessation assistance at no additional cost is fully and effectively implemented. It hasn't been so far. In a third perspective article, Fiori and colleagues offer strategies for physicians to use in helping their patients to reduce or eliminate combustible tobacco use. What advice do you have for physicians, and has that changed over recent years? The most important message for physicians hasn't changed. And that is that too few physicians even ask their patients whether they smoke, and too few physicians take the time to advise them on the best ways to quit. We know from consistent studies that when a physician takes the time to ask a patient about their smoking habits and to provide them with guidance about how best to quit, that that itself has a major impact. The second thing I would say is that every physician who has a patient who smokes ought to be up-to-date on the best available FDA-approved smoking cessation medications and the best available advice about how to balance medication with counseling. Physicians should make sure that every patient who smokes gets that information and is provided the assistance they need. But there will still be some patients, for certain, who even after being provided that advice, say they either don't want to quit or that they've been unable to quit using FDA-approved tools. And in those cases, a physician should make an individual judgment whether or not they think a product like smokeless tobacco or an e-cigarette might assist that individual. In other words, we should keep trying until the person actually quit. Let me end by asking you whether there are other important strategies, other important moves in a tobacco endgame that we should be thinking about. It's a good news story that we have made enough progress that we can actually envision a day where no one dies from a tobacco-related disease. The solution to it, however, is going to be a combination of doing what we already know works with testing a number of new tools. So the first thing I would say to somebody who is serious about making sure that we make another fundamental drop in smoking is don't abandon the tools that work. Cigarettes in the United States in most places are still unduly cheap. Higher taxes are the best way to reduce smoking. Nearly half the American public is not yet covered by laws guaranteeing protection against secondhand smoke in workplaces, restaurants, or bars. The states have dropped the ball on funding the kind of comprehensive tobacco prevention and cessation programs which have been shown to work. You know, that's a penny-wise, pound-foolish decision, but it is only going to be reversed if physicians and public health professionals speak up and demand it. And then lastly, there are some new tools. The Food and Drug Administration, for the first time, has authority over tobacco products. Several years ago, it attempted to adopt strong graphic warning labels that have been shown to work in country after country. FDA needs to finish that task and ensure that Americans are as warned as effectively as citizens of Canada, Mexico, and all around the globe. 
FDA also has a unique authority to impact tobacco products, and the hope is that they will begin to set product standards for cigarettes designed to reduce their toxicity, reduce their addictiveness, and reduce their appeal to kids. One of those issues that's already before them relates to the use of menthol in cigarettes. We now know that menthol in cigarettes dramatically increases youth tobacco use, so there's no excuse to allow the industry to manipulate their product in any of those ways that would do that. The FDA has also talked about reducing nicotine levels. What I would most like to see is FDA take all the steps it can to maximize the extent to which it discourages the use of cigarettes, the most deadly product, and to encourage the use of FDA-approved cessation devices and other nicotine that is delivered safely without causing the kind of death and disease we've seen. So there is a roadmap out there, and the challenge for us is less scientific and more whether we have the political will to implement what we know works and to take advantage of the authority FDA now has. Thank you, Mr. Myers.